primordial Shakti. That is the name of today's little wee transmission, primordial Shakti. What a great day it is too. This weather is just a peach. I'm here taking a hike. It's a bit wet, but nevertheless nice and sunny and a great day to do a little piece about further peeling off all the uh, lies and the programming that essentially every one of us has grown up with. So yes, primordial Shakti. I mean, we've heard that word before, Shakti, in the context of Shakti and Shiva. Shakti, of course, being the feminine essence and Shiva being the male essence. But today we're going to talk about the Shakti myth and how this leads into the Extianity and all that inversion and reversal that we have going on and how that sets the scene for many of things that are going on today, even if it really doesn't seem like that. So a wee bit here about the Shakti myth and how this relates to primordial Shakti. So a battle of old and new with myths in the Vedic text, the Devi Bhagavata Purana. This is a primary Vedic text with a tradition of the Divine Mother. Remember, if we look back far enough in these religions, even though something like Hinduism, which used to be Vedicism, has been very kind of reversed and perverted, if we look back far enough in these traditions, same thing with the Tao, we can find more of these remnants of the roots. So in this text, the Devi Bhagavata Purana, which goes along with the Hindu or Vedic tradition of the Divine Mother, in this one episode, the great gods Shiva and Vishnu, remember Shiva and Vishnu are part of that trinity of gods, Shiva, Vishnu, and Brahma, I believe. So in this story, it's Shiva and Vishnu. They're attacked by a mighty army of demons, and in an extended battle, it takes joint forces of both Shiva and Vishnu to vanquish them. Despite the victory being the result of joint forces between Shiva and Vishnu, they are both so vain as to claim it to be their individual victory and boast about their prowess before their respective Shaktis. And these two Shaktis are the goddesses Parvati and Lakshmi. The two Shaktis find this situation quite ludicrous and laugh at Shiva and Vishnu's naivete. Their inflated egos thus punctured, the gods become angry and address their spouses rudely. As a result, the goddess immediately vanish, the goddesses immediately vanish, and as this happen, happens, the world plunges into turmoil. Without the power of their shaktis, the two gods became powerless and fall into a lifeless, confused state. Only after an extended period of severe penance does the great goddess, Shakti, re restore herself to the two gods, saying, The insult shown towards my multi towards my manifestations has led to this calamitous state. Such a crime should never again be committed. And that's from the Devi Bhagavata Purana, uh, section 7.29.25. Shiva and Vishnu, now devoid of their inflated pride, return to their previous natures and are thus able to perform their godly functions as before. If abandoned by me, this universe becomes motionless. If I leave Shiva, he will not be able to kill demons. A weak man is declared to be without any Shakti. Nobody says he is without Shiva or without Vishnu. Those who are timid, afraid, or under one's enemies, they are called Shakti-less. No one says this man is Shiva-less, and so forth. So the creation that you are about to perform, no Shakti to be the cause thereof, when you, you will be endowed with that Shakti. 
you will be able to create the world. Vishnu, Shiva, Indra, Agni, Moon, Sun, Death, and all the other deities are able to do their karmas only when they are united with their respective shaktis. This earth, when united with shakti, remains fixed and becomes capable to hold all beings inhabiting it. If it be devoid of this power, it cannot support even an atom. And that's also from the Devi Bhagavata Purana, that's section 3.6. And look what we have in this world today. Look what we've had for the last, some say it's 2,000 years. I think it's more like 6,000 years with these, these Zyosludge Abrahamic ways that completely remove the goddess. Not only is she removed, she's um, thought of as a very unsavory, dirty, evil, right? It's almost like related to the idea of the devil. And, you know, of course, in the Extian or Abrahamic ways, and of course, we know the devil in the Sanskrit language, you know, Deva is, is a god, Devi is goddess. So it goes on to say, such a male god boasting about his powers if he existed apart from his own birth by the goddess is a frequent theme in myths, but it is not exclusive to India. We find it, for instance, in the Gilgamesh, uh, tale of Gilgamesh, and also with Australian Aboriginal men confessing to stealing women's power when women were not looking. And of course, this weaves into the myths of male motherhood, which we're seeing a lot with all this TS transsexualism stuff. Uh, men even in the court system pretending to be women, men in the prison system pretending to be women, uh, men in general just pretending to be women. And this is, of course, not a real thing, but in the eyes of legality, and remember legality is one of those things that is a man-made thing, essentially. Is it good that certain things are illegal? Maybe a few of them, but those things, I think any normal human person would know that those were things not to do, but to make it illegal for, you know, someone to say someone's, quote, pronouns the wrong way, this all goes back to the myth of male motherhood. And we can just see by that story right there with Shiva and Vishnu, when they took all the credit themselves and deleted the essence of the primordial Shakti, look what happened to the world and look what's happening to the world currently. Look what's been happening to the world your entire life. So a little bit more I just want to share about the myth of male motherhood and how this relates to the whole Adam and Eve thing, which even if we're not Extian, it doesn't really matter. This is still a cultural miasmic onlay that we all have to deal with, just like the transsexual thing. It doesn't matter if we're not into it. We're living in a world that's into it, right? So here's a little bit about the myth of male motherhood. There are quite a number of myths which explicitly or by interference claim a male origin of life. The story told in Genesis is a creation myth that justifies male domination in most Western societies. I remember, I think it was, well, I'm not sure what Skeksis or what Oyve said this, but Exdianity to destroy the West, Pislam to destroy the East. It's working. And of course we have that amalgamation now called uh, Krislam, which is a portmanteau of Christianity and Pislam. So a wee bit about Adam and Eve and all of this Zyosludge. The name Eve means mother of all living. The Judeo-Christian doctrine, however, gives us a myth of a male giving birth to the female, the whole rib thing, right? Could there be any more obvious reversal of reality than that? Think about it, right? Could there be any more obvious reversal of reality than a male giving a birth to a woman by his rib? What could be more ludicrous, right? 
In the biblical story of the Garden of Eden, a male god gives birth to a woman, Eve, by way of a man, Adam's rib, right? Yahweh. So Yahweh gives birth to Adam, and then Adam gives birth to Eve. This doctrine of male, quote, birth is the basis for thousands of years of male, quote, spiritual authority, which has provided the justification for just as many years of male political, economic, and social dominance. This version of manifest destiny is fashioned from the reversal of reality, a reversal which invades every phase of life, every social institution, the global economy, and every nation and government today. Male domination and its effects are global in scope. Its roots lie in a conceptualized, disconnected, and imposed male spiritual authority that is severed from the source, source with a capital S. Instead of reverence for the woman as life giver, the male god declares himself the source of life. Now that's chutzpah. The source of the female, even more chutzpah, and brands that female as bringer of death and sin onto the world, the spoiler of his once perfect garden. Now, that is definitely true. Whether you believe in this or not, it's, it's what it is, right? This is what we're dealing with. So that was a little bit about Adam and Eve. Now here's Eve and Adam. Language offers a simple explanation why women and serpent had to be painted as evil by the same brush. And we were discussing a little bit of this serpent thing yesterday on the broadcast with the whole snake venom thing. And so they've used this serpent thing almost in a Pavlovian sense to raz up Exteans or anyone who believes in the Exteans framework. The words for serpent, Eve, and teacher are cognates of each other in the Aramaic language. In Lady and the Beasts, Buffy Johnson refers to early Christian Gnostic, Gnostic texts with many hidden references to the serpent's superior wisdom, appearing in the form of wordplay that equates the serpent with the instructor. Serpent equals hiwa, to instruct is hawa, H-A-W-A, I think these are um, words or maybe Aramaic words. Other Gnostic accounts add a four-way pun that includes how Eve, Hawa, Hawa, not Yahweh, Eve is known as Hawa, H-A-W-W-A-H, instead of tempting Adam, gives life to him and instructs him. This, of course, was not a consequence of linguistic coincidence. Rather, the linguistic facts were a consequence of reality. Johnson points out that the story of Genesis is a project projection and a cover-up for Yahweh's transgression against his creator, Yahweh, Eve. Her sacred serpent and his stealing her power and even her name as his own name suggests. Sounds, um, sounds plausible. Sounds completely like it's, it's in line with everything else I've, I've um, orated thus far. When, women is, when woman is demoted from that civilizing, humanizing, refining aspect of her being, quote, civilization takes on a brutal, pain-inflicting quality it now has. Without feeling, without a connection, the sense of wonder at life numbs down to a dead sensorium. Trust and joy suffocate under the fear-driven control. Reverence bloats to arrogance. And self-honesty or self-reflection are crushed under the boot of self-deceit. And we're dealing with all that. We've been dealing with that for a long time. We've been dealing with it more, probably since Oyed AI and all of these ridiculous psyops, which are based on a primordial reversal, which is what Exteanity and the entire overculture, this entire Talmudic, Talmudiarchy overculture, is all based on inversion and reversal. 
without the refinement of woman's sexual, sensual body knowledge, something that scares the shit out of the skexis, societies are left with the trajectory of the truncated male capacity when it is split from these sensitivities and their resonance in relationships not only between women and men, but also adults and children and all of life. Women have been separated from their bodies by the demonization of our natural capacity for nuanced, powerful, and emotionally, sensually, spiritually integrated sexual pleasure through body loathing, for not being able to measure up to the emaciated, undernourished, prepubescent looking bodies of quote, top models, which are probably all transsexuals anyway, by fear of fat, by fashion, and by a large spectrum of personal and institutionalized physical and emotional abuse. The result at the end of such a trajectory range from the soft abuse as propagated in modern fashion and cosmetics, including the newly fashionable practices of genital and anal bleaching, and the advertising media in general, to the ubiquitous domestic violence, child abuse, the escalating brutality through rape, sexual abuse, and the separation from ourselves by pornographic violence of video games, and the real-to-all-real, quote, game of war, as portrayed in extensive high-production value advertisement for military institutions. All this aims at eradicating feeling. War and rape as video games brutalize generations, one cannot rape what one feels. And we might also think that we live in this highly emotive culture, like I said last night on the broadcast. We do, but they're not based on our actual feelings. It's emotions based on reactions, Pavlovian reactions to what the Skeksis are doing. And it makes me also think about how we have all this blood in gaming and, you know, war and all of this you know, um, CAFO slaughter, snuff movies, right? But we're scared shitless as a society, as a culture of menstrual blood. We even have to see on the adverts on the Talmud vision that they can't even use blood. They can't even use a red dye. They have to use that blue dye or that purple dye. So we can see the more we just think about things in a commonsensical way, we can see that we're living in a society that is a complete inversion of the truth on essentially every single level. And the more we peel it back, the more we're able to see things from this panoramic perspective. So it's like watching a film with new eyes, right? So it's almost kind of, I would say, a psychedelic experience without having to do psychedelics. So that's the end of this little clip, this little weed transmission, Primordial Shakti. I'm gonna go on with my walk now and wearing my barefoot shoes again just kind of moving, maneuvering around a lot of roots and leaves and twigs. It's a pretty rustic place where I am right now. So I wish you a lovely day wherever you are. And maybe hearing some of these things is, is new for you. But if you want good stuff for yourself and you want good stuff for the world, I trust you'll be open to these ideas. So until we meet again, Satnam.